0: Ah, well, let's get into our message for today. Um, If you would, uh, we are continuing our series in and through the book of James, and we're calling it Wisdom to Live By. And this morning we're in chapter 4, so if you have your Bible, pull it out, turn to James 4. If you want to use a Bible in the pew rack in front of you or under your seat, if you're in the front row, we're going to be this morning on page... 979, And what we're finding as as we take this journey with James is that he writes a very practical letter. This is a very practical book. And what he's getting down to is this. How does the gospel change your life? And he, he hits this from so many angles. How does the grace of God transform who you are and how you live? That's the book of James. And this morning... James is going to offer us a new challenge. He's going to give us a new reality or a different reality to consider. He's going to share with us two problems that he sees, and then he's going to share the problem underneath the problems, and then finally he's going to offer us the solution. So that's our roadmap this morning as we travel through James 4, the first ten verses. And uh, James gets right to it. He starts in verse 1 with a question. He says... What causes fights and quarrels among you? What causes fights and quarrels among you? You see, James starts with a question that is so universal. It's something every single one of us can relate to. And that's this. Relational conflict... Conflict in your life, fights and quarrels. And in this passage, he's very general. He never actually says what the fights and quarrels he's thinking of or the church is dealing with are. He never gets into specifics. And I think that is actually a wonderful gift because this gives us an amazing opportunity to insert ourselves into this passage. to, To put ourselves right in the center of James crosshairs here and to consider the places in our lives in our community in our families in our individual lives where we experience fights and quarrels conflicts so pause for a minute this morning as we get in and i challenge you to make this message personal think with me about this question where do you experience conflict maybe it's a conflict that's happening right now maybe there's one that you're right in the middle of or maybe you're not in the middle of one right now but there is one there's a recurring one there's a conflict that springs to the surface of your life time and again it happens on a regular basis maybe it's a conflict with a person or perhaps it has more to do with a situation but the question is this where is there tension arguing, fighting, quarreling or dissatisfaction in your heart is it at home with a spouse or a kid or a parent perhaps at work a situation there with a boss or a co-worker or an employee maybe there's something going on with a friend or a family member or maybe a relationship even at church Where there's just quarreling, fighting, tension. Where do your feelings of anger, frustration, resentment, bitterness, jealousy, disappointment, rejection tell you that there's some sort of conflict happening in your life? You see, feelings are an indicator of exactly what James is talking about. They point to something going on. And first and foremost, what James says here is this. Church, don't ignore that. Do not be tempted to just sweep it under the rug. Instead, he says, let's explore it. Let's dive in. Let's go deep into what's really happening here. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You see, your conflicts, James suggests, these quarrels are not just about the circumstances you're facing out there. They're actually about something that's happening inside of you. You're not just frustrated because someone has offended you. You're not just upset because they said this or didn't do that. There's stuff happening inside that you need to look at, James is telling us. In other words, your problem isn't just out there. It's maybe even mainly or primarily in here. Now, I do want to pause and point out that this is not always true. Some of you are facing things and the problem is out there. An abusive spouse or unhealthy environment at work or someone with an addiction issue or a form of injustice that your life is ramming up against in this world or even simply a friend who is treating you with inconsideration. Not every single problem we face, not every single conflict in our lives has its root in us. And most of the time, it's a mix. Some of the problem lies out there and some lies in here. But James, in this passage, he challenges us to be keenly aware of what is happening in our own hearts, especially in the midst of struggle and conflict and difficulty. He says, before you just instinctively... Put it all on the situation and blame everything on the situation. Before you put the blame on the other person, check your heart. Look inside. He says, what if the current issue you're facing, that current problem in your life, what if it's not just about stuff out there? What if it's revealing something significant about your own soul? And the question this morning is, are you willing, are you brave enough to go there with me, to go there, to walk that road with James? What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You see, James is suggesting, maybe the reason for your conflict is because deep in here, deep in your heart, in your soul, there are these things you desire, that you want, that you covet, things you believe you need or deserve, and you're not getting them. Perhaps your appetites, your unmet desires are driving your life, and you don't even realize it. You see, this is somewhat of a controversial statement because in our day there's this widespread belief this common understanding that our actions the things we do are driven primarily by what people say and do around us they're circumstantial this is why you'll hear people say things like you make me so angry you, you make me angry right? that person really brings out the worst in me I would never have said this or done that if they hadn't said this or done that. You see, we want to believe that our actions come from circumstances, but this is not entirely true. Certainly circumstances are involved. Certainly circumstances trigger. But what drives our actions, our quarrels, our conflict is often something we aren't getting in here. This is this is the time of year where something happens in our like mass media culture that I look forward to and take a great deal of pleasure in uh, experiencing. It's a it's a phenomenon that comes out of uh, the Jimmy Kimmel Show, and Jimmy, if you know him, he will ask parents right around this time to on the morning after Halloween to tell their children when they get up in the morning that. Last night, after they went to bed, they ate all their candy. And he asks parents to reveal this information to their children and to videotape the response. And I don't think this is a good parenting move. I would actually never do this. But to watch the videos brings such joy to my heart that I have to confess that I'm probably a deeply, deeply depraved person. And... What you see in this moment is the response of kids, right? Because they have this desire for candy. Candy's like kid gold, right? They want it. They yearn for it. They long for it. They desire it. And they've got it and they think they deserve it. And when it's not given to them, when it's taken away, you see a response that comes from deep, deep, deep in their hearts. Take a look, real quick, at this short video clip. <laughs> I got really hungry, and I ate it all. <laughs> Wait. I remember the last time you told me a joke? Well, this time it's not a joke. I'm going to check out my candy. If I see no candy, you are a big young lady. <laughs> James? Oh, My candy is gone. <gasps> Where'd it go? Mom and Dad ate it. I ate it. I ate it all. you ate all your candy? I ate it. I'm sorry. You have next year. Next year you can get more, okay? <laughs> Daddy and I ate old again. the chocolate things yes I didn't want to wake did you did you, you eat the cookies? I ate all of it daddy too <laughs> you threw your candy And I can't have it. So I will throw an absolute temper tantrum. And James is saying, we don't think we're like these kids, but maybe more than we realize we are. Most of the time, the conflict we experience out there is connected to a deep, unmet desire we have in here. That's the reality James invites us to consider this morning. And now, the two problems. Problem number one. You do not have because you do not ask God. You are looking to get from people and life and this world and candy and circumstances what you can only really ultimately get from God. The problem isn't them. The problem is the source you're looking to. Your conflict is with them. Your disagreement and quarrel and fight is with them. But the problem is, you're looking in the wrong spot. So James tells us, I want her to satisfy my longing to feel powerful or strong or in control. I need him to help me feel valuable or attractive. I'm looking for my job to meet my desire for importance or purpose. I believe my financial reality creates safety and security for me. I look to friends to find my sense of acceptance and belonging. I expect my kids to create feelings of fulfillment in my life. James says, you're fighting, you're frustrated, you're disappointed, angry, jealous, bitter, hurt, because only God can satisfy those needs. Only God can satisfy them in an ultimate, lasting, significant, never let you down sort of way. You do not have because you do not ask God. God can give you what she never will, what he can't, what candy will only offer for a fleeting second. That's problem one. Problem two, verse three. When you ask, you do not receive. Because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. You see, James says, it's not only that you have the wrong source, then you turn to God and you have the wrong motives. James says, problem one is you look to other people and circumstances to get what you want in this world. Problem two is you look to God, but still to get what you want. Want in this world. Read this passage again and see how many times James uses the word you. When you turn to God, are you seeking satisfaction in Him or in what He can do for you? You see, there's a big difference between, God, you are the center of my life. Make your desires my desires. That's different from, God, I am the center of my life. So how can I involve you, manipulate you, use you to give me what I really want and need in this world? I'll go the Alex Trebek route on you and ask it in the form of a question. Is your life ultimately just about getting your desires and wants and wishes met? And people are just a means to an end? And God is just a means to that end? Yesterday at the men's breakfast, Pastor Ron shared this Andy Stanley quote, and I really liked it, and I asked if I could steal it and use it again today, and he said yes. So here's what Andy says. He says, You cannot have meaning in life if you're not willing to have a means to an end that is not yourself. Those who devote themselves to themselves will ultimately have nothing but themselves to show for themselves. You see, and and none of us, James says, do this intentionally as Christ followers, but it slips in there. So now go back to your conflict, your struggle, your difficulty, the one with your spouse or your job or your finances or your friend. Here's the question. If you peel back the layers, if you're honest, how much of that conflict stems from you not getting what you want? You adulterous people. That's what James says next. I've been looking forward to that all week. You adulterous people What's adultery? It's when you look to someone else To give you what you should truly only get from your spouse I'll say that again It's when you look to someone else To give you what you should truly only get from your spouse And God is saying here I love you like you are my spouse And yet you are looking to the things of this world To give you what you should be looking to get from me You adulterous people. And he's speaking to me as well. Don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of God... I'm sorry, to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit he has caused to dwell in us? It says here that God is jealous and that sounds like such a negative thing. How could God be jealous? But that's because we think of jealousy in human terms. When we think of jealousy, we think of our jealousy. We think of the jealousy of others. Jealousy that's impure and that has selfish motives. But God is jealous with perfect, selfless Motives. In other words, he's jealous to be the ultimate fulfillment of all of our deepest desires. Why? Because he knows it's what's best for us. See, even God's jealousy has a selfless motivation to it. His jealousy longs for you to take whatever it is you are hoping in and looking to and relying on to give you power and control and value and acceptance and security and belonging and significance and fulfillment and to find that ultimately in Him. That's what He's jealous for. That's what He yearns for. He wants all of you because it's what's best for you. Now this doesn't mean you can't be fulfilled in your job. Of course you can be fulfilled in your job. God wants you to be fulfilled in your job. It doesn't mean He doesn't want you to be satisfied in your marriage. He longs for you to find satisfaction in your marriage. It doesn't mean you can't find meaning and belonging and a sense of security even in your relationships. Yes, of course you can and He wants you to. But who is ultimate? Who is at the center? Who is at number one? Who is the... Foundation of providing those things for you and your life? That's the question. That's problem number two. Now, the problem underneath the problems. Now we'll get down to the root of the weed and we'll find eventually the solution. It says in verse 6, But he, but God, gives us more grace. That is why Scripture says, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. See, at the core of our problem, to put our desires, my desires, your desires, our desires in the center of our lives, what's behind that, what's driving that, is one powerful, nasty word. Pride. And I want to stop and just explore for a moment what the Bible means by pride because one of our biggest problems is that we have a very one-dimensional, unilateral understanding of pride and it prevents us from recognizing it and seeing it in ourselves and others and in our community. See, when we think of pride, we think of arrogance, people who are boastful and always bragging on themselves, full of themselves, obnoxiously talking about who they are and all that they've done. And that is certainly one aspect of pride. But there are others. There are a lot of others. Tim Keller, uh, quoting Jonathan Edwards, talks about this, and he offers six marks of spiritual pride six ways pride manifests itself and that we can see it six ways it comes out of our lives and out of the lives of others and i'm going to run through these six to expand our definition of pride and perhaps help us recognize it in ourselves in our community it's also a chance to do a little bit of a self-inventory if you're that brave i promise these six things will cut a little and you will see yourself in these and you'll see me and I saw myself as well six ways pride manifests itself here's the first one he says pride makes you more aware of others faults and more likely to talk about them pride sort of heightens your your radar to other people messing up husbands and wives need I say more you see that's what pride does. But humble people, humility makes us slow to talk about other people's faults. Humility doesn't say we don't talk about other people's faults. It just it means we're careful with it. It means we're slow. It means we're not flippant or rash. Secondly, pride leads you, when you speak of others' faults, to have an air of contempt or disdain. I can't believe How could someone ever? Did you hear? But humility, a humble person, they will speak of another's faults with the goal of healing and making things right. Thirdly, Edward says, Pride leads you to quickly separate yourself from people who you've criticized or who have criticized you. When you criticize someone and you realize that you have or you hear that they've criticized you, you just create distance. That means you're cold to them or you avoid them. But humility, spiritual humility, means you stick with people even through difficulty. You never give up on them. Fourthly, and I like this one, a proud person is dogmatic and sure about every point of belief. And this applies certainly in the church, but to beliefs we hold about the wider world even. A lot of pride in our political world these days, from all sides. Maybe the number one issue in America is pride. So dogmatic and sure about every point of belief. This is a place where pride rips into and tears apart churches. And yet, humility, the thing that God offers us and calls us to, says, I'm willing to consider that I might be wrong. It's a slim chance. But I'm willing to consider it. John Calvin actually had a friend, this, a guy named William Farrell, and at one point he was writing about him, and he, and Farrell was like this very intense, dogmatic person, uh, pastor preacher and he said Pharaoh is always arguing with people because he can't stand to be contradicted he can't stand when people disagree he can't stand when people say you're wrong about that why it strikes at the heart of his pride fifth a proud person either loves to confront because they like winning or a proud person refuses to confront because they don't want criticism and controversy you see proud people can go either way they can either confront too much or too little they share the truth too often and too harsh of a way with too much joy or not enough because they're scared but a humble person confronts carefully necessarily appropriately sixth. Edward says, a proud person is often unhappy and feeling sorry for themselves. And this is the one that we don't always associate with pride, and I see it show up in the church. Listen to Keller's explanation of this. Proud people are filled with self pity because, first, they're so sure they know how life ought to go, and secondly, they're sure they deserve it, and they always deserve more see, if you're always feeling guilty or bad or like a failure or self-conscious or sorry for yourself, if you are always the victim, where is your focus? Where are you focused in your mind and heart and life? Yeah, on yourself. Your life and feelings and thinking are all about you, and sometimes we define humility as thinking less of yourself, but at the core of that is actually pride. At the core of people who think less of themselves than they really are is actually pride. Humility is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. Totally different person. And the question we have to ask is how? How do we become people of humility instead of people of pride? What's the solution underneath this whole thing? Because like we've said almost every week in James, the answer is not to try harder, to work more diligently at being humble. Do you know there's only two results when you try harder to be humble? They're both the same result. Either you try harder to be humble and it works, and now I'm so proud at how humble I've become. Or you try to be humble and you fail. And now there's so much self-pity that I'm wallowing again in pride. You can't get to humility on your own strength and James knows it. Really, really, really tempting to try and yet it will take you nowhere. Full circle. You'll end up exactly where you were before, maybe even worse off. Here's what James says. He says you can't do it on your own. But, read the text, but... He gives us more grace. What's the solution? Where do we find the power to become humble people? In the constant and consistent experience of God and His amazing grace. That is why James says resist the devil, fight back against the devil, push back. You see, the devil is just going to feed your pride. The devil is just going to feed the temptation to put yourself in the center. The devil is going to always whisper things in your ear like, you deserve it. It's her job to make you feel that way. If they would only act this way, then you could feel accepted, significant, important. It's their fault. You would feel safe if only you had a little more money. If you were only a little better looking. If you got that promotion, you'd feel better about yourself. It will feel good to say that negative thing. Just go ahead and gossip, slander, tear that person down behind their back. It's okay because it's true. You see, the devil is just going to feed your pride. He's going to say, you can fix it yourself. But James says, you can't fix it yourself. You have to go the humble route. You have to lean on God's grace. Submit yourselves then to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. You see, if you have the power of God with you, the devil's got nothing on you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. You people that rely on the things of this world and your desires for them to give you peace and satisfaction and significance, right? Along with God. Let's be you know, unified in our commitment to the Lord. He says grieve and mourn and wail. Do you see this language? This is repentance language. This is turn from the ways that you've been going, turn away from the things you've been trusting in and turn back to God and his strength and his power. And then what will happen? He'll change your laughter to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Say, I can't do this on my own, not by my own strength. It's going to have to come from you and He will lift you up. He'll create humility in you. He'll offer you security, confidence. How do we become humble people? People who don't think less of ourselves, but think of ourselves less. We put our faith and hope in a God who thinks so much of us that we don't have to think about ourselves. You see, in the Bible, it's so, this is tricky, but so significant. Humility and confidence actually go together. We, we think of them separate, but they go together. It's a really weird, but when you think about it, it actually makes a ton of sense. Because when I'm secure, when I feel confident in who I am, I don't have to think about me. I don't have to prove things about me. I don't have to look to others to meet my wants and desires. I can be humble. I can actually think about myself less because I'm full and whole. I've been given confidence and peace. Friends, I'll tell you what. Here's something I know about myself. And some of you have probably experienced me this way. I am the absolute worst version of me when I feel insecure when I feel threatened when I forget why I matter and why I'm significant and why I have value when I forget and that starts to feel threatened in my soul stuff comes out of me it's not very pastor like see friends when we feel insecure and uncertain That's when we need to prove ourselves, convince ourselves and others that we're somebody. See, our insecurity is what forces us to focus on ourselves and makes us proud, arrogant, in the self-pitying sort of way. See, humility is not a lack of confidence. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's having a source of confidence that allows me to think of others. And friends, that's why every single week without fail, we come to this table. We come for the Lord's Supper. Why? To get a dose of grace. For a dose of confidence. For a dose of pride-killing humility that reminds us that because of nothing we have done or will ever do through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God has offered you and me all the acceptance and power and strength and value and security and significance and belonging you can possibly ever imagine. It's overflowing at this table. So this morning, again, we come to the table And I invite you to come with your conflict, to come with that place where your your desires are not being met and it's resulted in fighting and quarreling and blaming to come and say, Lord, would you be the source of my satisfaction? Come with your pride, come with your insecurity and trade it in for the grace and security and humility of a God who thinks so much of you that He gave His Son for you. You see, let me tell you one other thing that will take humility, another place where you can just step into humility, it's by asking for prayer. You see, when you come forward and you ask for prayer, there's people here who want to pray for you, and it's a way of just saying, I need help. I can't do it on my own. I'm not a rock. I'm not an island. I need others with me. I need God, but I also need His family his bride his church his people to surround me and help me see humility is the pathway to confidence and confidence leads back to humility so step in today come to the table with your places of struggle and ask god to speak into those unmet desires of your heart and come for prayer folks in the front folks in the back I'm going to close by reading this quote and then the tables will be open. You can take the elements back to your seat and when you're ready, receive them on your own. But before you come, hear this. Why should I be selfish when I am full of real wealth and love? Why should I be defensive when all charges against me have been dismissed by the real judge? Why should I be offended when I have the love of the king of the universe? Why should I begrudge giving forgiveness when I am awash in Christ's forgiveness now and forever? See, That's the message of the gospel. That's the offer of the king. That's what we remind ourselves of at these tables. So come when you're ready and receive.